Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. There's a new movie hitting Netflix this month. It's called Tiger Tail. It focuses on a father and his daughter. There's the father, Grover. He's played by the great Tai Ma. He was born in Taiwan, moved to the U.S. as a young adult. He's quiet, reserved, and stubborn. His daughter, Angela, is played by Christine Coe. She was born in the U.S., and despite the challenges they have connecting with each other, they have a lot more in common than either would like to admit. The film follows Grover's life story. When he came to the U.S., what it was like, what he left behind, and the pain that he carries with him. It's a moving and beautiful film written and directed by my guest, Alan Yang. Alan is ordinarily a comedy writer. He was a longtime writer and producer on Parks and Recreation. He co-created the Aziz Ansari show Master of None and the Amazon comedy Forever. Tiger Tail is the first film he's written and directed. And even though it's highly fictionalized, the story it tells is deeply personal. Yang's parents are Taiwanese immigrants themselves, and he said that making this film brought him closer with his parents and their culture. Let's listen to a little bit from Tiger Tail. In this scene, Angela has just picked up Grover from the airport. She's learned her father has been in Taiwan and that her grandmother has died. I'm sorry about Grandma. Thank you. Are you all right? Hmm. I know this is a hard time for you, but I really wish you had told me about the funeral. It was a small ceremony. She was my grandmother. You didn't really know her. You never visited. The last time you were in Taiwan was when I took you and your brother when you were kids. That's true. It's a long trip, very far away. And I know you're busy at work. Alan Yang, welcome to Bullseye. It's very nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Had you, before you made this film, ever sat your parents down and ask them about their experiences I mean not just their immigrant experiences but maybe their their experiences before you were alive not very often <laughs> basically uh basically when I started thinking about writing this movie those conversations started to become much more frequent because they were at a zero or near zero level before that and they weren't exactly offering up a bunch of stories from their past themselves it is a kind of a weird thing one of my a close member of my family is an immigrant and she had a very difficult time where she grew up and like those things that I know about her experience there are either jokes that she told, like funny stories that mostly about trauma. And like, occasionally my dad would tell me something and you just kind of like, like back channels. 
Yeah, it definitely oscillates between like one little kernel of like, oh yeah, <laughs> like there's a picture of my dad, like clearly in a military uniform. It's like, oh yeah, what's going on there? He's like, oh yeah, it was hard. <laughs> it's like, oh, you were in the army? Like, Wait, you never told me about that. Like you're standing next to like a military jeep. Um, but yeah, it's either that or, or, or really not that much. And I think, um, you know, maybe the exception is some other parents will brag about the hardships they went through, but my parents didn't really even do much of that. They just kind of just didn't mention it. And I knew for a fact how wildly different their experiences growing up were from my own in America. But I, I really didn't know what they were exactly. How did it manifest itself in your life uh, when you were a kid and a teenager that their experiences were so different from yours? I just knew they were for a fact because I, I knew the rough outlines, which is that my dad's dad passed away when he was a year old and he was raised by a single mother and she didn't have the resources to take care of all of them. So when he was a baby, everyone in the village told her to give him up for adoption and literally give him away. But she was really stubborn, one of the most stubborn people in the world, and she wanted to keep him. So she temporarily gave him to her relatives in the rice fields. And so he lived out there for a while while he was a kid. Then he came back. You know, I know that I knew that she worked in a factory. That's about it. And I knew that all of those hardships that my dad went through were so different from my life because I was like, I want a Sega Genesis and I can't get one. And this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> like that, that was like easily. And then later on, I got a Sega Genesis. So even that wasn't a very, a very long struggle. Um, but yeah, it, 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 uh, it, you know, I just knew there was a difference. It, it was both generational and cultural. I, I think our lives were so different. And I think I don't want to overgeneralize because every family is different, but there is is, I think, a trend in some Asian families for there to be a very clear delineation between parents and children. It's not like your buddies. It's not like you're hanging out. I wasn't telling them about dates I went on, and they weren't telling me about dates they went on as younger people. <laughs> so I think it was it was the same, you know? It was the same on both sides. I think sometimes people feel weird or guilty about the fact that they weren't as interested in their parents' lives when they were kids or teenagers, because kids and teenagers tend to be solipsistic but i mean it's also like you're tr when you're trying to figure out who you are it seems reasonable to me to be a little miffed that your parents had this grand scale experience that is just like so much of an easier explanation for why it's hard to be a young person <laughs> you know what i mean yeah <laughs> It, it, it it's it's funny it's like well uh, i didn't have any struggles <laughs> but but i mean obviously that's that's an exaggeration but yeah i mean it, it, sometimes i think about it it's like yeah they had this epic life <laughs> they had a really crazy experience with legitimate struggles i mean it's it's it, it's uh, i i think about sometimes uh, the scenes that that we shot in the bronx where it's you know, it's two young Asian people in their 20s who are just learning English and they're walking around the Bronx in the 70s and they look around and all the faces are white, black and brown. There's very few Asian people and they were struggling to make ends meet. And that is just an incomprehensible struggle to me. That is a very, uh, very specific struggle that I haven't seen depicted on screen, number one. But number two, you're right that like, you know, I'll never go through anything that hard. My parents took care of me and they, you know, I went to school and then I, you know, tried to get a job and it was, it was just very different. And so, um, it, it's, it's one of the things I'm grappling with in the film. 
when you went away to college and you went to Harvard, so I, I imagine you must have been a pretty good student in high school, a serious student in high school. When you went away to college, did you already intend to have an artistic career? No way. I had no idea that this was a career. <laughs> like, I, this is totally foreign. This is so alien to anything I had any inkling I, uh, of growing up. So when I was a kid, I loved movies. I loved uh, TV. You know, I wasn't really allowed to watch that much of it until I was probably 14 or 15. And then I just started inhaling it to a very unhealthy extent or maybe in retrospect a healthy extent because it, it's, it's now my career but yeah no one I knew I, I grew up in Riverside California which is about an hour and a half from LA but is so different from LA sort of spiritually economically socioeconomically uh, and all of those things and so I didn't know anyone who worked in entertainment uh, my parents obviously didn't um, I didn't know what those names on the screen were when it says you know executive story editor or whatever when you're watching Seinfeld like I don't I didn't know what that was I loved uh, big blockbuster movies Jurassic Park uh, Back to the Future I loved comedy I loved you know Seinfeld Simpsons SNL um, and I, when I went to college I majored in biology because I was like, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm kind of equally good at or bad at math and science and, and the humanities. And um, I felt like if I majored in biology, I could still keep a lot of doors open. But yeah, I didn't know. I was mainly just terrified. I, I didn't know if I could handle the school academically. Um, I went to a big public school. Um, not that many people went to Harvard or schools like Harvard. So my first year at school, I just really wanted to work as hard as I could and not fail out. So yeah, after I managed to, to do okay academically the first year, I realized I definitely didn't want to work in biology. I worked in a lab for a while and I just didn't like it. So I, I started doing a couple of things. I, I, I always played music and so um, I joined a punk rock band um, and we would tour on the weekends and we ended up putting out a record and signing to a small label. So that was really fun. It got me off campus. Um, and then I started writing for a, a comedy magazine called the Harvard Lampoon, which uh, which was really sort of uh, an important experience for me because it made me more serious about writing and I really enjoyed the people I met on the Lampoon and, and they were really smart and really funny. And that was when it seemed potentially possible to have a career in something creative or artistic because before that point uh, it was it was not possible were you punk rock as a teenager yeah, I really was. So one of the things about growing up in Riverside was like the cool kids weren't like, it wasn't like the football team. It was like skateboarders and, and, and like kids who listen to ska and punk. So um, I got really into like third wave ska and then I got into two-tone and, and first wave ska and then uh, I listened to some punk and some hardcore and, and uh, it was really big. It was Southern California in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And, and so, um, it, it, yeah, it was it was really big. It, and, and I bought a Fender Stratocaster when I was 14 years old and taught myself like four chords. I was like, I can play now. And that's pretty much all I know still. So that, that was it. <laughs> Did you have an identity based around punk rock or was it a thing to do? Uh, it was a little both. I, I think, you know, I, I occupied a pretty interesting uh, sort of uh, taxonomy in, 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 in high school because uh, I think I was a little bit of a novelty. There weren't that many Asian kids. Uh, you know, my school was uh, predominantly white, uh, uh, Latino and black. And, and uh, um, I think, you know, quite frankly, it was de facto segregated. So at lunchtime, you know, uh, and the white kids sat over here and then like a lot over here, like a lot of Latino kids sat and black kids sat over here. And uh, I wasn't any of those things. Right. So uh, I kind of just had to, you know, learn to 
talk to different people and, and do my best to, to, to get along with a lot of different kinds of people. I remember at some point, there were so few Asian kids, I, at some point, uh, a, a, a classmate of mine who, was, who happened to be Asian, she, she was starting to pass me notes, and she would pass me notes in class, and you know I don't know what, what the deal was, I think she wanted to hang out or something, so she, she passed me a note one day that said, hey, Alan, how come at lunch you never sit at the Asian tree? Because there was one tree where the Asian kids would sit. It was like four kids, and I was like, "Well, I, like I, I wanted to branch out, and it was not that not that I didn't like you guys. I just was trying to trying to meet different people. So, um, you know, I was never like super popular in high school, but I I also did get along with enough people. You know, I played sports a little bit. I played I played a little bit of soccer. I played a little bit of tennis, and uh, you know, me and my friends were 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 nerdy, but not super nerdy. So, um, you know, we we had our little niche, and and we would go to shows. You know, I remember going to see you know real big fish or like the aquabats when I was like 14. And so that was like, that was Southern California in, in, in that time period. And, um, it, it, yeah, so it was, it was definitely part of my identity. Um, but I wasn't any, any, any one thing. It was like, yeah, you know, I'd kind of worked hard, did okay in school and, 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 and also listen to music and also play a little sports. So it was all of the above. I have a buddy named uh, Roman Mars, who is a podcaster uh, these days, hosts a wonderful podcast called 99% Invisible. And I, I remember having a conversation with him. He had been a very high achieving student as a teenager, went to college early, um, and was in a PhD program for uh, some kind of uh, evolutionary botany or something like that. And he was working in this lab looking at microscopes, I guess. And I remember him telling me that there was a moment that he had where he realized that he liked knowing the stuff that scientists had learned. Like that was interesting and satisfying to him, but he did not have very much interest in doing the boring years and years and years of testing a hypothesis that was involved in possibly, but also possibly not learning something. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have patience, man. You gotta. That was essentially my story exactly. Roman Mars, we're we're, we're two two peas in a pod because I I also went to school early. I went to college early, and and you know I just remember being seventeen, sitting in the lab pipetting, you know, for hours. <laughs> you know, you're pipetting for like forty hours a week in addition to going to class. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, man. I don't want to. I, I don't know. What how is? Many, can uh, you explain? Sorry, Alan. Can you explain what pipetting is? Other than I presume like a 1920s dance craze. <laughs> Pipetting is is like you have a you have a tool called a pipette that where you it, it like sucks in a tiny amount of liquid and then transfers it and then you you click on it like a pen and then you deposit that liquid into a nif- another chamber so you're just kind of moving liquid from place to place and like you know you do that and you, you're using a centrifuge you're using you know you're doing PCR like I, I literally I did work in a lab like I, I do remember this stuff um, and by the way far more important than what I'm doing now because people pipetting are currently going to cure coronavirus and meanwhile uh, I made a movie but yeah it's like uh it, it really uh um it really is it really was not for me and so that that uh that was just uh i just what i just realized it was just personal preference and you know i'm really glad uh that that i decided to to, to pivot away and, and and try to do something creative because I, I really love my job now did you feel as though it was a place where you fit not at all. Not at all. I, I really had issues freshman year where I was scared. I was kind of like, you know, these kids went to private schools and, 
you know, it was really like, can I hack it? And then after I, 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 you know, was able to do okay in these classes, these, these science classes, I just realized like, cause I didn't want to do that. Like, I also didn't feel like necessarily like those kids were my people either. And, and so I wasn't like a hardcore pre-med kid or like a hardcore math kid or any of those people. And, and by the way, you know, if you're at Harvard and, and you know, you're a hardcore pre-med kid, that's, those are the most hardcore kids in the country. They're really crazy. <laughs> They're really, really good at being pre-med kids. Uh, so that didn't feel like me either. And so I definitely felt a little bit out of place and, and hadn't found, uh, hadn't found the people I wanted to hang out with. And I think that, that, you know, once I got on the lampoon, I think that really helped. And, and, and I had always, you know, again, as I mentioned, loved comedy and, and me and my best friends in high school uh, loved talking about those shows. And so um, ultimately it was kind of cool to, to, to get on the Lampoon where, where a lot of those writers had actually worked. And, and that was a magazine I, I didn't know existed before I got to school. And, and so it was cool to, to be able to get on. That's wild. You, you really you didn't hear about the Harvard Lampoon until you got to Harvard? I didn't know, man. I guess it sounds like I lived in the backwoods now, but <laughs> it really like it did. It hadn't reached me. It hadn't reached me. It was, um, you know, they, they, they talk about the Inland Empire where I grew up is sort of like they, they call it the IE and it's like a place that wishes it were Orange County. <laughs> it's like it's not even it's not even Orange <laughs> County. It's like a it's like an Orange County that doesn't have the financial resources. And uh, yeah, it was not a lot of uh, there were not a lot of people talking about George Plimpton uh, in Riverside, California. There wasn't a lot of a, uh, a John Updike worship uh, in, in my in my neck of the woods. Uh, so yeah, it was really funny because like I got on staff and of the Lampoon and it was like people had uh, you know, people knew about it in high school or they, you know, they had read the magazine. I was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> like, I didn't know, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how I got on, but I'm here and, 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 uh, I, I'm enjoying it. So. Did you have to like submit something to get in the door? Yeah, for sure. It's an intense process. You, you, uh, write a lot of pieces, basically you write little prose pieces that are like comedy pieces. And then, uh, and then in my case, you don't make it for many semesters. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's, that's what ended up happening. I think the staff votes on it, you know, and, and that's how, that's how it happens. So, um, I got on fairly late and, 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 uh, when I got on, it was just like, you know, it was just fun for me because I wasn't going to be president of the, of the magazine or anything. I was just like kind of hanging out and meeting people and, and trying to be funny. So, uh, yeah, it was a fun experience for me. It's funny, Alan, because you are describing with extraordinary and typical Southern California chillness, going to Harvard, which takes extraordinary focus and dedication, and then deciding to do the most frivolous thing that you could possibly do, which is, you know, dedicate your life to writing jokes, and then getting rejected over and over in order to do it. So what was it that led you to think that you should put in a second submission after you put in the first one? Uh, I guess I have a lot of willpower, man. I got a lot, I got a lot of, I actually have a fair amount of confidence and a lot of willpower. So I, I think, uh, I wasn't just, it wasn't just twice. I think it might've taken me three or four times to get on. And, and, uh, when I did, the last time I got on, the last time when I actually got on, I was like, eh, I don't know. I, I don't think this magazine's very good. I don't think it's very funny. I'm just going to really phone it in. And then I made it. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, well, now I'm on. So <laughs> I really, uh, really phoned in that last submission and somehow got on. So shout out to the people who got me on. It really, uh, really helped us out. <laughs> when you were on that magazine, did you meet people who were there because they intended to... 
use it as a ladder to a career in professional comedy as so many people had in the past? I think some people had that aspiration at some point, and and I do feel like that was also somewhat frowned upon. It was kind of like, I think people didn't like when you were like very pre-professional. Obviously, there were exceptions, but I think the kind of overarching ethos when I was there was let's be here to be here. You know, let's be here to have fun and write jokes and like hang out with each other. And it was kind of like, I think it was kind of seen as kind of gross if you were like networking a lot or like trying to like, like I'm going to write for whatever after this. Like it certainly wasn't on my radar. And a lot of my friends like on the magazine, like I just don't think we were thinking about it. And it was seen as like, it was kind of frowned upon. So I don't know. That was just that particular era, but you know, the turnover of that place was very rapid obviously. So, uh, you know, I think it's probably different from time period to time period. Had you, decided for yourself that you were thinking seriously about making a career of it? I think like senior year, probably it started becoming real. And because I knew I was graduating and I just became really good friends with the other people there. And to me, that was one of the biggest boons of being on the Lampoon was, okay, well, I can move out to LA. I can start writing scripts and joke packets for late night shows and I'll be unemployed and not have any source of income and basically be broke in Los Angeles. But if I, since I'm on the lampoon now, I might have two or three friends who move out there with me and I can have a roommate or I can have two roommates and we're all going to be broke and unemployed together. And that was really, you know, it gave me a little bit of heart. And so that's what ended up happening is, is I moved out to LA with a couple of friends and, and we got an apartment and, you know, I still, rem- I is a long time ago now, but I remember going out to LA. We stayed at my parents' house in Riverside, my mom's place for a couple, like a week or so while we looked for apartments and we drove out there and we got a place on Sunset and Fairfax across from a Rite Aid. And it was, uh, I paid $675 a month and it was like, okay, well now I try to be a writer. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a little scary, but you know, you're there with your buddy. So yeah, that, that helped. What was the first thing that you got? Uh, I wrote for a show called Last Call with Carson Daly. So that was my first job. And and I'll always be grateful to Carson and everyone on that staff because, um, you know, it was a talk show on at 1.30 in the morning. And in some ways, looking back, it was the perfect first job for me because I got to write and I got to get stuff on the air. But the writing staff was so incredibly small that we also had to do everything. So, you know, like it it was like four writers. And so, you know, a lot of these late night shows have 20 writers or whatever. On that show, there were three or four of us and you would write the bit and then you'd produce it. You would cast it. You might act in it. You know, you're going to edit it. You're going to sort of make the graphics for it. You're doing everything. And uh, what a great education and and again i was lucky enough to to get that job when i was you know 22 or 23 and and uh um start from there so it, it was a good it was a good education for sure that is a very strange place to start a comedy <laughs> career and i have nothing like i don't have anything i think carson daly is a really talented and skilled broadcaster like and always has been and that that show uh, which just ended like uh, six or six months or a year ago was a a very strong show, I think. But on the other hand, if you ask me to make a list of things that Carson Daly is, and I re- I'm really sincere in complimenting him, like I'm sure he's avuncular, but I wouldn't have chosen hilarious. You know what I mean? Well, I, that's what I think. Some someone somewhere, I don't know where, a like Vulture or something, should do a piece on Carson Daly and 
his history of fostering comedy writers because no one knows this, but there was a certain period of time where he was trying to do a little bit more comedy. You know, I think he wanted to, to be able to do a traditional monologue and just sort of learn. And so I think, you know, he idolized uh, Letterman and he was buddies with Jimmy Kimmel. And so he wanted to try it. And so his method of trying was really interesting. He hired really, I thought, really excellent comedy writers. And if you look at the history of the writing staff of that show, you will find, among others, Dan Gore, who co-created Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, you will find Steve Healy, who wrote for The Office and 30 Rock and Veep. Um, you will find Dave King, who wrote for Parks and Recreation and, and Workaholics and uh, and Love. And, and you will find just really good comedy writers. And it's just like, I just think people don't know that, you know, just like we were all working there at some point in time and it was an amazing you know job where i got to live in new york city and and we shot in rockefeller center you know we shot on snl stage for for the first half of the week and and what a, what an amazing I, I certainly felt incredibly lucky and carson was a great boss love that guy <laughs> no complaints what's the weirdest thing that you wrote for the carson daily show that you're proud of uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, this is not super weird. I'll, I'll list off a couple things because it really ran the gamut. One thing was just kind of a regular bit that was like we were always looking for what, you know, in the late night world they call refillables, which is something that you can just kind of, you know, do every week. It was basically, God, we called it current events karaoke, I think it was. And so it was like people would sing and I would write lyrics to like, a, a, you know, whatever. It was like bird flu was happening or whatever it was. And you would write karaoke and then we we had people from the staff sing it and then years later like uh fallon basically did that for for his show called it was called slow jam the news but it was just him singing i was like oh that's basically the same idea <laughs> it's the same bit you know you just sing, you just write funny lyrics and then write write songs and then do them but we did that bit for a long time you know we did that bit over and over again um there was also uh uh, you know, people would play characters on the show. I think at one point, this was, I think this was a really, in some ways, in retrospect, probably not a great bit to do because it just disappointed the audience. But we did a bit where Carson said, hey, and tonight, on tonight's show, Charlize Theron will be here. And people went crazy. It's like, yeah, well, Charlize Theron. And then when Charlize Theron came out, it was, uh, it was just one of our writers, Steve Healy, and he was just like a six foot four, like Irish guy, who just like came out and sat down. <laughs> and the bit was that Charlize was so deep into character. I think this was like post monster where she was really getting into character and doing method stuff. He came out and he's like, yeah, he just pretended to be Charlize there in the entire interview. And meanwhile, you look at the crowd of like random tourists and they're like, where the hell is Charlize there? <laughs> this is just extremely, it was like the comedy of disappointment, just a horrible idea as far as revving up the crowd. We'll finish up my interview with Alan Yang after a quick break. When we come back, the actor John Cho both performed in and helped produce Tiger Tail. Then Alan cut him from the movie. Yang will tell me what it was like breaking the news to Cho. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. If you're spending more time at home, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour is here to help. From family-friendly favorites to stream to recommendations that will calm your nerves, we've got ideas. What to watch, what to read, what to listen to. For both old favorites and new arrivals, Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Listen and share with your friends. If you're looking for a new comedy podcast, why not try the Beef and Dairy Network? It won Best Comedy at the British Podcast Awards in 2017 and 2018. Also, I love there were no horses in this country until the, the mid to late 60s. Specialist bovine arse vet. Both of his eyes are squid's eyes. Yogurt buffet. She was married to a bacon farmer. 
who saved her life. Farm-raised snow leopard. Download it today. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast from MaximumFun.org. Also, maybe start at episode one, or weirdly, episode 36, which for some reason requires no knowledge of the rest of the show. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Alan Yang. He was a longtime writer on Parks and Recreation. He created the shows Master of None and Forever. He just wrote and directed his first ever feature film. Tiger Tail is streaming now on Netflix. Let's get back into our conversation. What what was your first job working on? I don't want to say working on something that you were proud of because I'm sure you were very proud of your work at every stop in your career. But when was when was the first time you worked on a show where you felt like, oh, this is it. This is the thing I was trying to get to do. Uh, I think it was probably Parks and Recreation, and and that's for a number of reasons. You know, I had a, I did a season on on South Park as well, which was really fun and again an amazing education, and I loved watching uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone work. But on Parks and Rec, it was really the first time where I had a lot more input than I was used to, and uh, Mike Sher and Greg Daniels, who co-created that show, do a really good job of kind of making everyone feel welcome and and sort of you know allowing them to try to put their stamp on the show and they'll hire young writers who don't necessarily have the most experience and try to teach them along the way. And so when I got hired in Parks and Rec, I, I was a baby writer, you know, I was called what's in the parlance of the business, a staff writer, which means you don't really have very many previous credits. Um, and I was, you know, I was probably 25 or something when I got hired and it, 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 it was quite frankly, a, a total learning experience and a learning curve. And, um, I worked on, 125 episodes of that show <laughs> and by the end uh, I was helping Mike to run the show and I was directing episodes and 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 having a lot of input so uh, yeah that was that was a, a formative experience for me it taught me a lot about not just writing but the producing aspect and and being on set and directing and and working with the cast who who I love uh, very dearly so yeah that was that was an incredibly fortunate lucky um happy experience and 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 a really a, a great memory in my career i get the impression from having talked to folks who worked on the office in parks and rec and the various tendrils that it has sent out over the years that a really important part of the process on those shows, and it's one that maybe you can see on the screen, especially in, in Parks and Rec, is putting together a cast of talented and, and especially interesting people and then using the writing and story process almost to discover like what is most interesting about those people as performers. And like that is true of any sitcom to some extent. But it's it feels to me an outsider pretty central to how Parks and Recreation came to be what it was. I'd say that's one hundred percent accurate. Um, absolutely, and I think obviously as writers uh, and as show creators or showrunners, if you get to that point, you want to have everything fully fleshed out. You want to have it be perfect, and you want to have you know essentially. Yeah, I'm going to hire an actor to embody this role, but I think a lot of times in comedy, and particularly ensemble comedy and and comedy of the nature uh, that, that you know the kind that Parks and Rec was, you got to use the people you got. You know, you got to use them in, in to the fullest extent. And if you can tailor your characters, if you can adjust, if you have the luxury of seeing cuts and saying, "Oh my God." 
you know, this is what this person does. This is what this person does. Let's, let me get to know this person. I mean, everything from very early on visiting Nick Offerman at his wood shop and incorporating <laughs> woodworking in his character. Literally, we did that. We went to his wood shop. Like, this seems like interesting for the character. And Or from Chris Pratt, who was a guest star season one. He was not in the cast. He was he was a guest star. And it was like, you know, that character was kind of written as uh, kind of a jerky guy who was kind of uh, mistreating uh, Rashida's character a little bit. And then it was like, wait a minute. Chris Pratt is the most likable human being in the world. He's a human golden retriever. This is like, no one's ever met him and disliked him. Let's make the character really sort of happy-go-lucky and silly and likable and uh, prove to be a pretty good decision. So, you know, you got to, you got to use what you have. You got, and, and, and by that token, by that same token, it behooves you to cast the right people and really just find the right people and, if that means it's not exactly who you sort of envisioned when you wrote the role, then screw the role you wrote because you've got this real human being here and a script isn't a thing that people want to read. A script isn't the finished product. A script is a blueprint and, and, and you film the real thing with real people. And so you got to use those people. And, you know, it's very similarly, you know, when we did master of none, we had this role written for a friend of Aziz's character, you know, just like a, a friend character. And we didn't, we honestly were, were open. We were like, Allison Jones, you're casting the show. Just send us interesting people. And so Allison is the best at her job. She sent us dozens, dozens and dozens of people, um, men, women, all races, kind of all ages as well. And, I believe the first or second person we met was Lena Waithe, who was mostly a writer at the time. She wrote for Bones. And we we're just like, Lena's the most interesting person. Forget anything we wrote. <laughs> Let's just cast her and then make it her. And like have it be like, yeah, Dev is hanging out with this 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 woman, Denise, and let's just make it Lena and just have talk to Lena and get more about her and and get more about her story and, and incorporate her into it. And you can't fake that, you know, you can't fake that on screen. So, um, it, it's, it's a philosophy that I like to adhere to as well. And, 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 uh, you know, you, you want to sort of use the writing and use the performing in, in concert with each other and, and really have them inform each other. When you had the chance to create your own show in Master of None, which you created with Aziz Ansari, did you have goals Yes, we had uh, many, many specific goals, one of which was simply that we wanted to shoot it in New York because we liked New York. So that was part of our thought process <laughs> as young men uh, creating a TV show together. We're like, let's do it in New York. The other idea was, let's not have it be 25 episodes a year. Let's do 10. So that very two very simple goals to start. Uh, and and, and uh, then on top of that, I think we wanted to be a little bit ambitious with it and do something different. And we definitely had a heart-to-heart and, and, and many, many sit-downs prior to beginning writing that show where we say, well, what's going to make this show different? What's going to make this show special? What's going to make this show ours and feel fresh and original and something that catches people's attention? And so we really thought about that for a long time. And we had the additional very lucky break that um, we sold the show to Netflix and, and we you know were greenlit to make the show. And then Parks and Rec got picked up for another year. So we suddenly had another year to kind of think about it more. And honestly, if we had made the show a year earlier, I think the show would have been a lot worse because we didn't have very good ideas. <laughs> the show we pitched, thank you to Netflix for buying it, but the show we pitched was like, yeah, it's like he's in New York and he's single and like, 
he's hanging out. <laughs> we just didn't have that. We had stuff, obviously, but it just, I don't think, was as interesting as what we ended up making ultimately. And so, yeah, so when we finally got our heads together, we, we started talking about a lot of things. And some of those things were expanding the perspective to other characters. And, and the parents episode was one we talked about very early on. And I think that might have been the first or second one we ended up writing. And so um, that's one that takes place partially from the point of view of our parents and, and is based kind of on his parents and my parents' story. And, and, and uh, yeah, so we kind of went from there. I mean, it's funny. I, I remember watching that and I was thinking of it as I was watching Tiger Tail because really, you know, I, I remember the two of you doing interviews at the time and saying that kind of what had happened was you were you know, doing some reflection in order to figure out what what you could do in this show that was supposed to have a personal voice and had characters that were, you know, stand-ins for the two of you in many ways. And you realized that you would never have a story like your parents. <laughs> yeah, it would never be that good. It was essentially, you know, we had that little anecdote of my dad killing his pet chicken for dinner because he didn't have enough food to eat. And I was like, we never have that struggle. <laughs> like, we're never, that's never going to happen to us. Uh, we're, we're, we're two idiots in a hotel room in New York and we get our own TV show. Like, our lives are cake. <laughs> and so that was basically one of the messages we put in that episode. And, and frankly, you know, it continues to sort of be explored in Tiger Tail, I think, in a very different way. But of course, the kernel of an idea, which is that our parents' lives are just unfathomable and, and, and different and, 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 and honestly, uh, much more epic in some ways than than our lives you've made a couple of serial comic television shows you know the uh the last couple tv shows you've made uh forever and master of none and neither of them is you know a, a yuck a minute laugh fest but they're definitely comedies and this film while it has a few funny characters there's that part where the the mom says somebody's uh husband looks like a toad that's pretty funny um <laughs> I, 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 I love that. I love the reaction shot too. I thought Quavo Yang was very funny that scene. But it's it's really not a comedy. And did you feel the same sense of comfort wading into that territory uh, that you felt becoming a director? Yeah, I did. And and, and you know, uh, you know, some people have talked to me about that before. It's like, oh, what made you want to do it? And I really felt like it came from the story first and and the characters and and the world and and what I was inspired by. So it was very natural for me to say, okay, well, what best serves this story and what genre would best sort of exemplify and get across these themes and deliver the emotional message I wanted to, to sort of pass on. And it was very clear that it was a drama for me very early on in the process. And it was also clear from the films I was watching and, and what I was inspired by and the, the lofty goals, you know, I had in sort of making the movie and, and, and which movies were sort of, uh, you know, touchstones. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I was watching Edward Yang and watching Ho Chao Shen and watching Wong Kar Wai and, and, you know, those movies were less 30 minute, uh, comedies and, 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 and more dramatic. So it, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was less 30 rock and more, uh, in the mood for love, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it definitely, you know, I, I guess maybe I should be more anxious about stuff like this, but I, I just kind of, you know, charge straight ahead and, 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 and try to take on the task at hand. Was it difficult to cast the film given that there are relatively few Chinese and certainly Taiwanese actors and Chinese and Taiwanese American actors who are famous? 
Yeah, I mean, it, I, look, the pool is just smaller. You know, it's not that there aren't capable actors. It's, you know, we've uh, I've talked about this with my Asian friends. I'm like, yeah, if you want a 30-something uh, white actress, <laughs> you got so many options. They're amazing. They're all amazing. You know, it's like you can cast Scarlett Johansson or Natalie Portman or Florence Pugh or, you know, Keira Knightley or, you know, there's, there's whatever. You got a million actors and they're amazing. You could, you, there's, there's so many. It's like it's unbelievable. And then if you're like, okay, well, we want uh, uh, an Asian actress or specifically a Taiwanese-American actress is like, uh, you you might be able to name two or like four, like maybe I don't know, like and, and so you just don't have the list, right? There's no list that gets sent to you. It's it's a it's a list of zero or one, and so you're looking, you know, you're looking, and that's why I feel really lucky to have found Christine Ko and Tai Ma. Uh, they are so talented and and so emotive and so um, really uh, without being household names, they they really understood the material and and really embody the character and you know gave me more than than I thought I even wanted you know I just I just um, I feel really really lucky to have them on board and and then by that same token it was also a challenge to go to Taiwan and find Taiwanese actors because the vast majority of the people in the Taiwanese section of the film are actually Taiwanese and so um, finding Hong Chi Lee and finding uh, Yoshin Fang and 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 Kwame Yang it was like okay we're meeting these people in person and you meet with the person and, and get a read on them and 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 you know, find out how charismatic they are. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of casting, you know, it's something you, you generally can't teach. And so I did a chemistry read with Ty and Christine in America. And I did a chemistry read with Hong Chi and, and Yoshing in Taiwan. And, you know, they, they, they ended up being my leads. Did you have the language skills to understand the, there's both Taiwanese and Mandarin in the film? Absolutely not. Uh, so my my Mandarin is terrible and my Taiwanese is non-existent. So I was relying on a lot of uh, translation and a lot of gut and a lot of gut instinct and sort of just my own judgment. And uh, I will say my Mandarin got better over the course of filming and I did my best to learn and I did my best to sort of just engage. And I realized I knew more than I thought I did because my parents did speak Mandarin to me growing up. And it gets, I guess it sinks into your bones a little bit because I do remember, you know, a couple months into production, I was giving a note and the translator, you know, delivers my note in Mandarin to the actors. And then I guess they felt comfortable at that point because they started freelancing and just adding extra notes so that the translator would give my note and then say like, oh yeah, and this take pretend it's the first time you've met and act surprised and like, like you don't know each other. I was like, what are you doing? You can't do that. And then like I, I said, no, don't do that. You can't, you can't add extra notes. Like this is not your job. And then the translator was a little taken aback. And that's when I think they realized and, and the, the actors realized that uh, I could understand some Mandarin and, and probably more than I let on. So um, yeah. I got better and I'm still learning. I'm, I'm using Duolingo on my phone to learn Mandarin. So um, my it's it's not the best way, but it's better than nothing. And um, I'm able to text my parents a little bit of uh, a little bit of Chinese now. I was about to say, have you considered just calling your folks? Nah, it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have one last casting question, which is you cast one of the people off of that short list of famous Asian American actors, John Cho, uh, who's Korean American, if I'm not mistaken. And um, he's also an executive producer on the film. You shot with him and cut him out of the movie. I presume it wasn't because he did a bad job. He's a very good actor. But was it hard to have to like 
call him and be like, hey, uh, executive producer John Cho, the only famous person in this movie, I decided your storyline was inessential? It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. It's really hard, man. And and not not only because of the fact that he obviously is 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 a is a big name and, and is a famous person and a tremendous actor, but it's like he's put so much into the movie. And and I, I also want to mention Hayden Zito and you know Christine also had some scenes that with, with John that aren't in the final version of the movie, and they all did tremendous work. You know, they did tremendous work. And it's the hardest thing in the world to tell someone, you know, uh, you know, you put your heart and soul into something and, and, and you delivered. It's not like you didn't deliver. You, they did they all did great work, uh, John included. And the movie just kind of tells you what it wants to be and, and, and you find what the core of it and the heart of it is um, as you're putting it together. And so I called John and he couldn't have been more gracious. He was in Australia at the time shooting Cowboy Bebop and and he, he said some of the nicest stuff. He said, that he's like, I've never gotten to do some of the stuff I've done in this movie. It'll always be with me and I've already used some of the stuff I learned on Tiger Tail in subsequent work. And I just want to, you know, give you a hug at the premiere and and, and tell you congratulations. And um, so, unfortunately, we can't we don't have a premiere. But he he literally texted me two days ago, and he says like, I, you know, he got to watch the film. He he said, you know, he loved the movie, and he he, he wants to support it any way he can. So, um, much love to John and Hayden, and 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 for for being so supportive, and 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 Christine as well. You know, Christine still has a, a, a you know a, a great amount of scenes in the movie, but it really. Uh, it really is a testament to, to all those actors that they're still so supportive and so warm and, you know, we're on really good terms. You know, I had dinner with John and, 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 um, you know, we want to work together again on something. And so it's really the case of, you know, I think this has happened to many movies in the past. You hear about, you know, how, how her was made or the thin red line was made or Annie Hall, like all these movies, um, you know, they change, they change over the course of making them. And I think that's one of the sort of, challenges of making a movie is you can't be rigid you watch what you have and you and you keep adjusting and you keep adjusting and you and you and you kind of keep working at it to make it the best it can be and you know you wouldn't be doing your job and you wouldn't be doing justice to to any of the actors or any of the people who worked on it if you weren't constantly trying to make it the best it can be was it harder to call john cho or call netflix and let them know that the one movie star in the movie had been removed <laughs> netflix from the was movie. great netflix was great i couldn't okay. believe it man i think i think they 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 saw the cut and they understood so it was like they just saw the, the they just saw the the movie and they 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 were supportive I, I you know again i those guys i i, I can't say enough about netflix too because they let us make the movie we want to make and, and we're all so proud of it well, Alan Yang, it's a really lovely film. Uh, I, I am glad that you're proud of it. And uh, uh, thanks for taking this time to be on Bullseye, especially in these unusual circumstances from, from your home. Yeah, thank you so much, Jesse. Alan Yang, Tiger Tail is streaming now on Netflix. You should absolutely give it a watch. Also, if you're looking for another TV show to stream these days, Yang's series Forever with Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph is funny, weird, and moving. You can catch that on Amazon Prime. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is currently being produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California, where, unlike Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top, I had uh, what I can only describe as a mental break and shaved my beard off. It was uh, unsuccessful. (laughs) Looks awful. So, uh, despite the health benefits, I think I'm just going to just going to grow it right back. 
Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien, and our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Dan has made a collection of music used on Bullseye, available pay what you will on Bandcamp. Uh, search for DJW Bullseye there. Uh, it's great great tunes to, you know, read a book by or whatever. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. If you're hosting any parties with your immediate family members at home, uh, you should get one of their records. And uh, if you have some time on your hands, we have tons of interviews in our back catalog. If you like parks and recreation, who boy, we have talked to uh, Nick Offerman. We've talked to Retta. We've talked to Rashida Jones. We've talked to Adam Scott, Billy Eichner, Ben Schwartz, Jenny Slate, Dan Gore, who is also a writer on the show. He was just on our, our show a couple weeks ago talking about uh, his show uh, that he created called Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is a great show. All of those uh, available on our website at MaximumFun.org and uh, almost all of them available in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.